Reiko Onuma's Unfortunate Destiny, Animals in the Indian Buddhist Imagination, published by Oxford University Press in 2017, is a masterful treatment of animals in Indian Buddhist literature. Although they are lower than humans in the paths of rebirth, tales about animals show them as virtuous and generous, and often as the victim of human failings. In the life stories of the Buddha, animals serve as doubles, thereby adding nuance and complexity to various episodes in the Buddha's life. Onuma, in this groundbreaking study, argues that animals in Indian Buddhist literature serve to illuminate what it means to be a human being. Welcome to the show, Reiko. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let me start with some background questions. Could you tell us how you got interested in Indian Buddhism? Sure. So I first got interested in India as an undergraduate, and it's kind of a long and convoluted story. But basically, I was a junior at Berkeley, and I was a psychology major. And I did not like my major, but it was kind of too late to do anything about it because it was already halfway through my junior year. And so one day, a friend of mine told me um, this story, which in hindsight, I realized was a completely ridiculous story um, about a friend of his. What he told me was that this friend of his was traveling in India, kind of doing the backpacker thing. And one day, he hiked out into the jungle And he came across this old abandoned temple uh, that was all overgrown with weeds. And he went into this temple and he had this kind of magical encounter with a monkey. I won't even tell you the details of the encounter because it's so ridiculous. Um, (laughs) But at the time, I was like 20 years old and I just thought, God, India is so cool. I should learn something about India. And I just happened to be at Berkeley, which, of course, is a major center of South Asian studies. I'm sure I didn't realize that at the time. Um, And so the following term, I took um, Introduction to Indian Civilization, and I absolutely loved this class. And so from then on, I took nothing but classes about India with uh, Bruce Prey and Robert Goldman and Sally Sutherland Goldman and of course, my very favorite professor of all, the amazing uh, Padmanabh Jaini. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about halfway through my senior year, I also announced to my Asian parents that I was going to have to go to college for a fifth year because I was determined to add a South Asian studies major to my psychology major. Um, and of course, they weren't very happy about that. Um, So I ended up majoring in South Asian studies. And then as soon as I graduated, I went to India for a year on an American Institute of Indian Studies uh, Hindi language fellowship. And I lived in Benares for a year and absolutely loved it. And then when I came back from India, I started graduate school. My first year of graduate school was actually at the University of Chicago in the South Asia department. And I'm so um, struck today by how smart and savvy most graduate students are because I was nothing like that. I sort of barely knew what I was doing in graduate school and I had no idea what I wanted to focus on within South Asian studies and I missed my boyfriend and I was just kind of really, really miserable that first year. Um, And I'll always be eternally grateful to... Uh, Frank Reynolds, 
uh, because one day he sort of pulled me aside towards the end of that first year and said, you know what? I don't think Chicago is for you. I think you would be much happier somewhere else. Um, And he also said, uh, you know, you seem especially interested in Buddhism. I think you should get a PhD in Buddhist studies. And I think you should do it at the University of Michigan. And I think you should study with Luis Gomez. Mm -hmm. So he told me to do all this. And that's what I did. And it's kind of striking to me today that I was so sort of um, clueless that I needed somebody else to tell me what I was interested in and where I should go to study it and who I should study it with. Uh, But I'm really grateful that he did that because Michigan ended up being a really great place for me. Um, Luis Gomez, who, as you know, uh, passed away last year, uh, was a wonderful mentor to me, endlessly patient with my lack of direction. Um, Don Lopez, who arrived a couple of years later, uh, was, has also been an amazing mentor to me really throughout my whole career. Um, so that's sort of how it all started. It started with this ridiculous story about this monkey. And actually the cover of this book, mm-hmm. the cover image is kind of a tribute to that. Uh, the cover image is a photograph of a monkey sitting on a Buddha statue Um, And it kind of fits in with the theme of the book, but I also kind of privately intended it as a tribute to how my interest first got started. That is a fantastic story. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I often tell that story to students because I want, especially students at Dartmouth, because I want them to sort of leave themselves open to discovering that they might have interests they never would have dreamed they had, even if they're based on totally you know, fake stories. Right. (laughs) That they should go off and find that temple with the monkey, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this is your third book. The first Mm -hmm. book was Head, Eyes, Flesh, and Blood, Giving Away the Body in Indian Buddhist Literature, um, published from Columbia University Press in 2007. Uh, The second book was Ties That Bind, Maternal Imagery and Discourse in Indian Buddhism, published from Oxford in 2012. I'm wondering if you could tell us about how you got to Unfortunate Destiny um, as the the topic for your third book. Yeah, so actually there is a very kind of straightforward progression. Um, The first book uh, was about uh, Jataka's previous life stories of the Buddha involving the theme of bodily self-sacrifice. And I've always been really interested in those uh, stories, especially for their uh, extreme physicality and their kind of the way in which they almost lovingly dwell on these incredibly gory scenes of self-mutilation. And Buddhists in India, as I'm sure you're aware, were were kind of obsessed with that theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, uh, the first book was based on my dissertation, which was on that topic. And while I was writing the first book, I noticed that one of the ways in which the Bodhisattva's gift of his physical body is described is by comparing it to a mother, because mothers are also people who give away their physical bodies, um, not only through birth giving, but especially through breastfeeding. Um, so that little image or that comparison while writing the first book sort of led me to the second book. It led me to become interested in motherhood and uh, as a trope and kind of maternal imagery and discourse in Buddhist literature. 
And then while I was writing the second book, <clears throat> one of the things I did in that book was to contrast the um, mother's love with the father's love. Um, and mother love in Buddhist literature is highly idealized for being intense and compassionate and self-sacrificing and so forth. Um, but at the same time, it's also seen as kind of the very worst form of attachment. And it's seen as being kind of mindless and instinctual in nature. And hmm. in that way, it is contrasted with the more detached altruism of the father, which is kind of like the detached altruism of a bodhisattva. So one of the ways in which that contrast is made is by comparing the mother to an animal. So like, for example, a lot of stories about grieving mothers will compare the grieving mother to a cow searching for her lost calf or to um, a mother bird crying out of grief over its dead hatchlings and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's what led me to become interested in in animals. And so what I've noticed is that because the because the books have followed that progression, I seem to be sort of always interested in these concretely physical kinds of things and also in things that are sort of the lower and more degraded pole of a hierarchical opposition. So like uh, bodies rather than minds and mothers rather than fathers and animals rather than humans. Um, so that's how I got to, that's how I got to animals. It's not really a natural topic for me um, because as I um, noted in my Acknowledgements. I'm not. I'm not really a huge animal person, um, but I, I did find the process of writing the book uh, super interesting. Right. That's that's great. Um, and yeah, I noticed that this was that all your topics seem to have to deal with these these subjects that are a bit on the margins, as you mm -hmm. put it, um, that they're on the that lower part of the hierarchy. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how you approach a project like this. Once you decided that you wanted to work on animals, what was the, how did you go about uh, deciding which stories to use and what right. to focus on? Yeah. So once I sort of fix on a topic, I guess I just start reading, you know, reading a lot of uh, Buddhist texts that I'm already familiar with. Um, and just kind of picking, you know, my, my books have all been thematic in nature. I'm kind of just interested in this kind of project where you pick a particular theme and then see what Buddhist literature has to say about it. Um, and I, I, for the last two books, I've been using mind mapping software um, where I just start reading a lot and gathering images and gathering tropes and seeing the ways in which they're used and what texts they come from. And I just start mapping them on, on a mind map. Um, and eventually <laughs> I print the whole thing out and it, like it covers an entire wall. Um, and I found... Um, like rather than straightforward outlining the mind mapping where you're able to do like bubbles and then collapse them and make them turn into other bubbles and so on and so forth. It sort of allows you to get like a big, a big picture um, of the, of the theme that you're looking at. Um, and so that's what I did. And then I gradually started to come up with the, with the structure of the book, which sort of, um, 
is divided into to what I see as kind of different strands of the Buddhist discourse on animals that shouldn't necessarily be treated together, or, or at least an attempt should not necessarily be made to try to reconcile them with each other, but rather to see them as different voices coming from different concerns. That's really, really cool about the mind map. I'm imagining now this entire wall um, covered with yeah. the, the themes that you want to pull yeah. out from this, the texts. Um, yeah, it's pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> so turning to the book itself, in chapter one, you began by laying out the differences between animals and humans. So w- can you tell us what these are? What are the key differences uh, in the Indian Buddhist context? Yeah, so so as you know, um, the human rebirth in the world of samsara, we have uh, either five or six realms of rebirth. Um, and two of those, human beings and gods, are classified as uh, in Pali, sugati or fortunate destinies, what I translate as fortunate destinies or good rebirths, uh, brought about through positive moral deeds and involving generally kind of pleasant situations. And then the other three, uh, animals, ghosts, and hell beings, are what I translate as unfortunate destinies or durgati, um, uh, brought about by negative moral deeds um, and uh, involving generally unpleasant situations. Um, so one difference is, uh, you know, the fortunate for- versus the unfortunate destiny and the way in which human beings, you know, have kind of an optimal balance between happiness and suffering, whereas the animal rebirth is very much characterized by, by kind of unrelenting suffering. Um, I think the biggest difference maybe between animals and human beings um, comes from a passage uh, that many people have cited, a passage from the Melinda Punha, which makes it clear that the primary distinction between animals and human beings is that animals lack uh, pranya, uh, which is often translated as wisdom, which I think is a good translation when you're talking about specifically uh, a soteriological context. But when it's used to distinguish animals from human beings, I think it has a much wider sense. Uh, I translate it in the book as higher mental faculties Mm -hmm. uh, and really including kind of reason, insight, discriminative knowledge, uh, discursive knowledge. Um, This is kind of the the largest difference between them. And the lack of pranya, you know, leads to a bunch of other differences. Uh, The lack of language among animals seems to be a huge one. Uh, The fact that they lack language and therefore they lack, you know, the ability to plan and reason and strategize. Um, but also the recognition of social categories and social boundaries that are kind of enabled by language. Um, and then those two things together, the lack of pranya and the lack of language lead to a serious lack of moral agency. So they're not really able to engage in intentional acts of moral self-cultivation. They're not even able to be truly immoral either. Um, in the Abhidharma Kosha, there's a passage which says that they're not capable of restraint and they're not even capable of lack of restraint because they just lack that ability altogether. So they're lacking in moral agency, they're lacking in language, they're lacking in pranya, um, their lives are characterized by uh, lots of suffering. Uh, foremost, I think there's a huge emphasis on kind of 
the 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 extreme physicality of their lives they have sex they die they eat and are eaten um, in Indian thought in general, there's kind of this huge emphasis when it comes to animals on eating and being eaten, uh, predator and prey, uh, grass eaters and meat eaters, uh, the law of the fishes, kind of the law of the jungle. Um, and so that kind of all of that kind of lends into um, or kind of contributes to their um moral degradation as well. It's, it's kind of on the one hand, they lack moral agency, but on the other hand, because they are constantly eating and being eaten, and because they also are characterized by mindless promiscuity and lust and incest, they're also kind of morally degraded beings. So that so the, my whole point in chapter one is to really paint a pretty dire picture of the animal realm of rebirth, which I think is kind of the standard uh, Buddhist doctrinal and cosmological view. And then, of course, in a, in a lot of the rest of the book, I then go on to complicate that. But I thought it was important in the first chapter to really emphasize that because there are some kind of more popular writers on Buddhism who tend to take a really a way too optimistic view of Buddhist thinking about animals uh, and kind of emphasizing that, you know, because humans can be reborn as animals and animals can be reborn as humans, they're really the same and they're equal. Um, and I just, I, I don't think that's the case. Right. And so one of the key takeaways, as you've pointed out from chapter one, is that animals as they lack this moral agency, it's very hard for them to move forward, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in the second chapter, you turn to one of the ways in which that they, they can move forward, and you talk about the importance of catching sight of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. How does this work? So um, this is a topic that um, Andy Rotman and um, others have written about as well. But when you look in Buddhist literature for stories about animals really making some kind of progress and getting out of the unfortunate situation that they're in, which is said to be very, very difficult, um, what you generally find is a particular pattern where they um, have to be in the physical presence of the Buddha. They look at the Buddha. Um, it's kind of reflecting the importance in India placed on darshana in general, vision or seeing. So they look at the Buddha, and as soon as they look at the Buddha, their, um, their chitta, their mind or their heart, spontaneously gives rise to prasada, which is usually translated as faith, but can also mean kind of serenity, clarity, a sereneness, calm, etc. So they they look at the Buddha, and through the kind of power of his um, presence and his charisma, their heart or their mind spontaneously gives rise to a state of faith or serenity. And then usually they die pretty quickly. Um, after after that, they die, and then they're reborn in one of the lower um, heavens of the Buddhist cosmos. And that seems to be when I look for stories in Buddhist literature about animals, you know, getting out of their unfortunate situations. That seems to be about the best that they can do: coming uh, into contact with the Buddha, giving rise to prasada, um, and then being reborn as a deity in one of the lower heavens. What, what, what I think you don't see is 
the animal's ability to really engage in any kind of intentional self-cultivation, because that's a prerogative that seems to be reserved for human beings. Um, And you also, in a lot of these stories, and this is kind of what I talk about in chapter two, you see this kind of lingering desire to make sure that you place limits on what the animal can achieve within the body of an animal. So if they are able to attain rebirth in heaven, and maybe in a later life, they go on to attain one of the soteriological goals like stream entry or once returnerhood or something like that. Um, It's always made very clear that that was not a result of what they did as an animal. That was the result of something they did in a long ago life when they were a human being. So on the one hand, I feel like there's this kind of compassion for the for the lowly state of the animal. There's some attempt to give them a mechanism whereby they can better their situations. But at the same time, there's this sort of lingering anxiety to make sure that they cannot attain too much. Um, because one of my arguments in the book is that thinking about animals is really used to reflect on what it means to be human and and what's special about being human. And so limiting what the animal can achieve as an animal kind of safeguards the prerogative and the the uniqueness of being a human being. So these animals that you talk about in the second chapter are in some sense regular animals, I guess I would say, Um, because in the second part, you turn to Jataka tales that feature speaking animals. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, so chapter one is sort of, chapter one is sort of, you know, the animal realm of rebirth as a doctrinal category. And then chapter two is sort of given that miserable situation that animals in, what's the best that an animal can hope for. And I show that it's very limited. And yeah, those are kind of generic. I focus on five stories in that chapter from the Divya Vedana and the Avadana Shataka. And those are all kind of ordinary animals and none of them has a name. They're just described as the bull or the black snake or the buffalo um, and so forth. So those are kind of that that's all part one. And then chapter three gets into part two, where I turn to what I really consider as a completely different category of animals. um, And that is uh, animals in the Jatakas. Right. So chapter three, the first uh, chapter in part two, you focus on human violence towards animals. Mm -hmm. What can we learn from these stories? So I was interested um, in animals in the Jatakas in general, and especially animals in the Pali Jataka collection, where they're just so pervasive, um, appearing in really almost every story. Um, And I was interested in the way when I went, when I went and looked at what people have said about animals in in Buddhism and animals in Buddhist literature, there was this constant need to say, well, you know, the animal realm of rebirth is this miserable, low state, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the animals of the Jatakas are a little bit different. So over and over again, there was this emphasis on how the animals in the Jatakas are different. So I really wanted to explore that. So I think what makes them different is, is the fact that they're highly anthropomorphized and especially the fact that they speak. Um, the animals in the Jatakas generally speak. They often speak to human beings as well as to other animals. Um, and I think once you allow them to speak, um, you give them a voice And then you're able to see kind of a different perspective. And that's what I really started to see once I really started looking at the animal Jatakas in the Pali collection was that 
we're getting a totally different perspective than the kind of doctrinal view that I dealt with in chapter one. Um, And one thing I did was to sort of pay attention to what it was that they were speaking about. And chapter three is about how, in many cases, what they're speaking about is human abuse and cruelty and exploitation of the animal world and the way in which it is pervasive, the way in which is utterly taken for granted. Um, And so I feel like the animal jatakas kind of give us this alternative view. They give the animal a voice and they give us insight into a kind of imaginary animal perception of human beings as uh, thoroughly corrupt and morally degraded in their treatment of the animal world. So that chapter looks at a bunch of different jatakas dealing with um, meat eating and hunting and trapping and ensnaring and just outright kind of senseless animal cruelty, um, animal sacrifice, um, the criminal punishment and execution of animals, all these different themes that are um, dealt with in these stories, um, but that are treated from the animal's point of view, which is enabled by the fact that they speak. So one thing I noticed in this chapter is you, you've mentioned that sometimes the animals speak to human beings. Mm-hmm. Which humans, why do some people seem to understand animals better than others? Well, that's a good question. So, you know, it it depends on the story. Like in some stories are just, they just take the point of view that animals speak and that human beings can understand them. Um, And then in some stories, um, the animals don't speak um, and the humans don't understand them. And then in some stories, there's also a theme of particular people who are able to understand the cries of animals. And so the animals don't speak, but certain human beings are able to interpret what, what their animal cries mean. So it really kind of depends on, on, on the story. Um, but one thing I am interested in is sort of that, that, I, that I don't explore in a systematic way in the book, but I maybe possibly hope to do in the future is just this whole issue surrounding um, animal cries versus human language um, and how difficult it is to translate across that divide and to communicate across that divide and the tragedies that are that are brought about through miscommunication. Hmm. So in chapter four, we might say that that's a more optimistic view of the animal-human relationship uh, because you mm-hmm. talk about animals that save human beings. Uh, I'm wondering if there's one of these stories that you could tell us that you think is exemplary uh, for this type of story. Uh, yes. Let me just think for a minute here. Yeah. So, um, so the uh, Negroda Biga Jataka, which is the story in which um, a deer king, through the fact that he's able to speak and through his noble and compassionate nature, manages to convert a human king kind of to the side of virtue. And he manages to make the king be a good king and learn the proper dharma of kingship. And in the process, he also manages in a very explicit way to get the king to grant security to all animals within the kingdom. So what I was interested in there, and I kind of tried to connect it a little bit to um, animal rights theory, 
um, is the way in which, you know, uh, speaking animals, because they are kind of human-like, they implicitly blur the distinction between humans and animals. And by blurring that distinction, they kind of enable a sort of communion between humans and animals that is otherwise impossible. And so the deer king in this story, through his human-like behavior and through his nobility and his compassion and, and so forth, is able to get the king to grant him security, security for his own life. And then he says, well, okay, you've granted me security. What about the other deer? And then the king grants security to the other deer. And then he says, well, what about the birds? And what about the fish? And what about other four-legged creatures, etc.? Um, so it's blurring the distinction between humanity and animality um, and then using that wedge to extend the king's circle of moral concern until it includes all sentient beings. And it's kind of similar to what's known in animal rights theory as the argument from marginal cases, which is when you kind of um, invoke the case of marginal human beings, or what I would say are animal-like human beings, such as very young infants, uh, to show that that if you're maltreating animals based on their lack of rationality or their lack of personhood, then you should be willing to eat babies as well. You know, so so it's showing that our mistreatment of animals really has no logical or rational basis to it; that it's just purely uh, speciesist in nature. Um, so whether you invoke like an, an animal-like human being or a very human-like animal, it's kind of a strategy you can use to blur the distinction between humanity and animality and then get somebody to widen the circle of their moral concern and then come to see that, um, you know, I, I quote this famous line from Jeremy Bentham, who said, uh, the question is not, can they reason, nor can they talk, but rather, can they suffer? So that presumably in a Buddhist worldview, the only criterion that should be governing our treatment of other beings is their ability to, to suffer. So yeah, so chapter four is sort of about animals who use language in, in order to, to do all of those things. And again, kind of use language to call humanity to a higher moral standard and to ask humanity to live up to um, its unique moral capacities. So in part three, you then turn to some very special animals, animals mm -hmm. that are doubles of the Buddha, as you put it. And in this section, you discuss a horse and two elephants. Mm -hmm. Could you start by telling us about the horse that is the scapegoat for the Buddha? Yeah, so chapter five is about the horse Kantaka, and he is the horse belonging to Prince Siddhartha, uh, the Buddha, when he's a bodhisattva. Um, and he plays a very crucial role in the prince's great departure, that is to say, his renunciation of the world and his setting out on the path that will eventually lead to him becoming a Buddha. I've always been really interested in Kantaka as a character. Um, and I've been interested in, first of all, the way in which up until that moment of the uh, of the of Prince Siddhartha's final break with his worldly life as a prince, up until that moment, there's this consistent effort to identify 
uh, Prince Siddhartha with the horse Kantaka. So for example, the horse Kantaka is one of the seven conatals. These are seven objects or beings or things that come into existence at the very moment that the Bodhisattva is born. Um, and so he's identified with the Bodhisattva in that way. During the Bodhisattva's great departure, the horse plays this really active role. He knows what's going on. He is in agreement with it. He wants to help the prince renounce the world. Um, and the prince himself talks to the horse and kind of gives him credit for this important role that he's going to play. So there's this total fusing together of, of the Bodhisattva and the horse. Then you get to that Rekha? scene where, yeah. Rekha. Okay, continue on. I got something that said on my end that we lost connection to the server. Oh. So I am not sure where that happened, but can you go back and start the horse over again? I'm sorry. Are we connected now? We're now connected. And I, you know, I, I just caught it out of the corner of my eye, so I'll have to have them edit this section out. Um, okay. But so if we, um, let me ask you the question again. Okay. Okay. Could you tell us about the horse that is the scapegoat for the Buddha? Yes. So the horse, uh, Kantaka, is a character that I've always been interested in. He's the horse that belongs to Prince Siddhartha, the future Buddha. And what I've been interested in is the way in which the horse is really closely identified with the prince. He's born at exactly the same moment as Prince Siddhartha. Um, and he is Prince Siddhartha's horse during his time as a prince. And then during the great departure, the time when the prince is finally going to renounce the world so that he can become a Buddha, uh, the horse is a really active and willing participant. He sort of knows what is going on. Uh, the Bodhisattva speaks to the horse and asks for his help in undertaking the great renunciation. And so they're really, really fused together, which is one of the reasons that I see the horse as kind of a double for the Bodhisattva. Um, but then we come to that crucial scene when it's time for Prince Siddhartha to make a final break with his worldly life as a horse. Um, and there I've always been really intrigued by his last interaction with the horse, where, of course, because the horse is an animal, they don't they don't say anything. It's not a verbal conversation, um, but it's a really emotionally powerful scene. The horse licks the prince's feet and the horse weeps and the prince reaches out and strokes the horse um, and then uh the prince retreats, and in men, in some versions, not in all versions, but in some versions of the story, as soon as the horse can no longer see the prince, he dies. So the interpretation that I kind of develop in this chapter, and, and I do mean this loosely, this whole idea of the horse as a scapegoat, but I feel like the horse in that scene kind of becomes the container for all of the turbulent emotions surrounding Prince Siddhartha's renunciation of his worldly life as a prince. So what struck me in that scene on the riverbank when the prince is saying goodbye to the horse is the way in which the horse kind of becomes a container for all of the turbulent emotions involved in Prince Siddhartha's renunciation of his worldly life and the, the severance of all the emotional ties he has back to the kingdom. 
and how because precisely because Kantaka is this mute animal who's unable to say anything, um, he acts as a kind of container for those emotions, and then he dies, and he kind of um, I don't know, you might say takes those emotions away so that Prince Siddhartha can go on in his quest. And in one text, I think it's the Buddha Charita, where it says the, the after the encounter with the horse, Prince Siddhartha is able to go on with indifference, right? So the whole kind of mourning of the worldly life of the prince and the way in which that life has to die away, to me, is embodied in that incredibly poignant scene with the horse and 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 the scene relies for its power on the fact that the horse is a mute animal um and and so no comment is kind of called for and no argumentation or logical discourse about renunciation is called for you're just allowed to linger on that scene um and then in other versions of the story the horse doesn't die at that point the horse actually returns to a couple of us do with uh chandika the charioteer um, and there too, I see the horse acting as a scapegoat because one of the things I never really noticed before, but really noticed um, this time around when I started looking at Buddha biographies, was the way in which the horse becomes kind of a target for all of the loved ones that the prince has left behind. So uh, Prince Siddhartha's wife, uh, Yashodara, actually throws her arms around the horse's neck um, and she weeps and she uh, expresses her grief to the horse, but she also expresses a certain amount of anger and blame and vitriol. Um, the Buddha's father, uh, King Shudodana, does the same thing. He also weeps and expresses um, uh, grief uh, and anger at the horse. Um, and then shortly after that, the horse dies of grief. So I feel like there's a kind of sacrificial logic going on here. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. especially about Vedic sacrifice, where, you know, the sacrificial animal is first closely identified with the sacrificer. And then, but but the animal is a substitute for the sacrificer. The animal is, dies in, in place of the sacrificer. And somehow that death leads to a kind of profound transformation of the sacrificer, rebirth of the sacrificer. Um, as well as, uh, in some cases, taking away the sacrificer's sins. And I feel like all of those uh, features of animal sacrifice, both Vedic sacrifice and more generally, uh, fit perfectly with how Kantaka is functioning in the story. Um, and of course, the final element in that sequence is to, to reward the scapegoat, to compensate the scapegoat uh, through some kind of divine reward. Um, and we have that in the case of Kantaka because he's immediately reborn in heaven. And once he's reborn in heaven as a god who can talk again, uh, there are several texts in which he just goes on at enormous length about kind of how willing he was to um, to aid in the prince's renunciation and what a wonderful reward he's now experiencing. So it's almost as if you you want to be assured that a sacrificial animal goes about its death willingly, that it's a willing participant. And you also want to be reassured that it it, it gets a more than compensatory reward. Um, and so I treat Kantika with, as functioning with this kind of sacrificial logic in, in the Buddhist life story. Right. These were just such moving stories, I thought. Um, <laughs> the first elephant that you discuss, you call a mirror for the Buddha. What do you mean by saying that this elephant serves as a mirror for the Buddha? 
Yeah. So one thing I've I've been interested in with animal characters is the way in which they they do often function as doubles of the human characters, um, almost as if if you have a mirror or a shadow image for the human character, you're kind of reinforcing the the status and the decisions of that human character, but it's a mirror that always at the same time has to be denied and human superiority over the animal double has to be asserted. So in this story, which really has always fascinated me, it's a story about how it's one of the few times I think in Buddhist literature where the Buddha is really depicted as being just utterly fed up. Um, so the monks in the city of Kosambi break out into this very contentious dispute over a minor matter of monastic discipline. And the dispute gets worse and worse, and they argue and argue, and the Buddha tries to get them to resolve it, but they just won't listen to him. And finally, the Buddha gets kind of fed up, and he leaves without telling anyone where he is, and he retreats into this forest, and there he encounters the elephant Parileika. And what's so interesting to the story about the story to me is that um, the story makes has this clear effort to show the elephant as an exact mirror image of the Buddha. The, the elephant has also retreated from an oppressive situation in elephant society. He's been kind of hassled by the female elements, elephants. He's been constantly surrounded by young elephants and elephant cubs. Nobody will leave him alone. And so he too has kind of retreated from the rabble and withdrawn into the forest. Um, and then the Buddha and the elephant spend an entire three-month rainy season retreat kind of hanging out together in this forest. Um, and so in this way, I argue that the elephant is a kind of mirror image of the Buddha and that having that animal double um, kind of uh, reinforces the Buddha's own status and reinforces the Buddha's own uh, decisions, especially in this rancorous situation in which the monks don't seem to be listening to him. Um, but at the same time, as is common with animal doubles, there's also a need to kind of occasionally reassert the hierarchy between human and animal and to kind of forcefully return the animal to animal status. Um, and so I also show some of the ways in which that is done. Um, the, the elephant Parileika in relation to the other elephants, he's kind of this noble leader who has retreated from the rabble in favor of majestic solitude. But once he's with the Buddha, he becomes this humble, devoted, submissive servant, and he does everything for the Buddha um, and so forth. And in that way, human superiority over the animal is reasserted. And then at the end of the end of the story is also really interesting because once the Buddha has kind of spent three months with this elephant and he's finally ready to go back and deal with human society, he uh, the elephant tries to go with him and he really sternly admonishes the elephant and says, "No, you can't go. You're an animal." And he specifically cites the inferiority of the animal rebirth and the fact that animals are um, incapable of any kind of spiritual discipline and he makes the elephant uh, stay behind. Um, so it's in these senses that I see the elephant as a mirror. In the one hand, he's a mirror image who is kind of reinforcing the Buddhist status and the Buddha's decisions in this episode. But on the other hand, it's a mirror that also remains transparent because at regular points throughout the story, the animality of the animal is kind of forcefully reasserted. 
Right. So the second elephant, you use a different term for. You call this elephant a billboard for the Buddha. How does this function differently? What function does this elephant serve? So this is the famous episode in which the Buddha's cousin, Devadatta, the schismatic monk Devadatta, uh, tries on three occasions to assassinate the Buddha. And one of those involves this maddened elephant. He sets a maddened elephant named Nalagiri um, on the road where the Buddha is walking, uh, thinking that Nalagiri is going to kill the Buddha. Um, but his plans are foiled because the Buddha just walks right up to the maddened elephant and reaches out and strokes the elephant with his right hand, and the elephant is instantaneously tamed. So what I'm looking at there is um, kind of the way in which that episode um, is, is engineered by the Buddha as this kind of grand public spectacle. There's a huge crowd of people witnessing this. Uh, the Buddha insists on a, in a very macho kind of way that he alone is the one who's going to tame this maddened elephant. He kind of belittles his male disciples for being kind of not as powerful as him. Um, and so I argue that in the taming of the elephant, it's kind of a really condensed and potent image of the entire path of Buddhist self-transformation um, encapsulated in a single instant. Um, and that through this instantaneous taming of the elephant, that whole path is kind of put on display for the public at large in a way that uh, really reaffirms the power and majesty and charisma um, of the Buddha. Um, and on the one hand, you know, I think running throughout all of these chapters is this simultaneous human identification with the animal, but also this assertion of hierarchy. Um, and here the form that takes is that the encounter between Buddha and Nalagiri is this sort of paradigmatic contest between man and beast. And the Buddha represents kind of the epitome of the human ability to engage in self-cultivation, whereas this maddened elephant in must, uh, Nalagiri, represents all the forces of kind of animality and nature and passion and brute instinct and so forth. And when uh, the Buddha instantaneously tames Nalagiri, it's kind of man overcoming beast. But at the same time, uh, the most interesting thing about the story is the way in which parallels are drawn between them. They're both elephants, uh, and especially this really interesting language used in some of the stories where they're referred to as the Buddha elephant and the elephant elephant, or the Buddha elephant and the animal elephant. And so the argument I make there is that, that the beast that needs to be tamed is, of course, really the beast within man himself or man's own beastly nature. Um, and so really this taming of Nalagiri, again, is presenting the entire Buddhist path of self-transformation, but in this very condensed and potent form as a mass public display that kind of reverberates through the cosmos at large. And so that's the sense in which I see Nalagiri functioning as kind of a billboard for the Buddhist power and majesty and charisma. 
Right. And it really served as a kind of climax for the the tale you're telling about animals in this Indian Buddhist tradition. Um, mm-hmm. As the final chapter, and then as you turn to the conclusion, and as we turn to the conclusion today, I'm wondering if you have any parting thoughts on what we should learn from studying animals in the Buddhist tradition, and where you think there is potential for future study. Yeah, so... Um... I think I think what I found most interesting about looking at animals, and I guess I probably should have realized this from the start, but honestly, I only kind of realized it as I went along, is the way in which animals really do function as a comment about what it means to be human, that humanity, you know, to understand what it is to be human really depends on the non-human. Um, and so humanity depends on the animal for its own its own humanness. Um, so I started out being interested in sort of animals and how animals are depicted. And increasingly, as I went through writing the book, um, it became more about how animal representations function um, to comment on 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 the human and 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 Buddhism as a human centered project. Um, but I think also what is interesting about animals is that, of course, there are other non-human beings as well. There are gods and there are demons and so forth. Um, but animals are are unique in the fact that you know they they exist in the real world and they're and they're alive. The way I put it in the in the beginning of the book is that. Uh, among all symbols, animals are the only symbols that kind of gaze back at us, that stare back at us. And so in their aliveness, there's something that they're, they're, they, they function as this kind of great symbolic resource, but there's something resistant there. There's something that resists our complete control, um, and that makes them really compelling. And the other thing that makes them compelling as a symbolic resource uh, is the fact that animals do exist in the real world. They have their own kind of phenomenological reality. Um, and so there's always kind of this interesting interplay between the actual reality of animals, the actual creatures themselves, and then all of the ways in which they're being taken up uh, symbolically and metaphorically and in Buddhist discourse. Um, yeah, so those are my kind of major takeaways. Um, as for where to go in the future, there, there are a couple little um, threads in the book that I'm still kind of working on. I just finished a draft article um, that was about um, the jackals. I've mentioned jackals kind of briefly in the book, but uh, I've been interested in how uh, jackals are often associated with heresy and heterodoxy. Mm-hmm. So um, either non-Buddhist teachers or heretical Buddhists who espouse the wrong view um, and the way in which the ugly howl of the jackal becomes a really uh, good image for that. Uh, and so one kind of path that that's leading me down that I might explore further in the future is, you know, animals are a, are a good symbolic resource for talking about the human, but I also think they're a dangerous one because uh, comparing humans to animals um, is kind of dehumanizing, dehumanizing in some way and degrading in some way. And what I what I talk about in this new paper that's about jackals is about how it slips into a register of jati. Jati is, of course, the word for caste, but it's also the word for species. Um, and so when you compare human beings to animals, you kind of almost naturalize their bad points and their 
bad qualities and start to suggest that they are kind of irredeemable as a matter of birth. Um, and so that's kind of the extreme dehumanizing or othering that I think is, is um, a dangerous feature uh, of using animals as a resource. That sounds fascinating. And I know that I will look forward to reading that article when it appears. Uh, I think that I would like to thank you for a very fascinating conversation and for making time for the new books in Buddhist studies. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Reiko Onuma. Until next time, this is New Books in Buddhist Studies.